Четверка, семь, восемь, черта, ноль, ноль. Четверка, семь, восемь, черта, ноль, ноль. Hello, and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. been an interesting week and well quite unexpected really. First off I must confess that it was my birthday. I didn't mention it because I tend not to mention these things. I never liked being the centre of attention quite oddly given that well I've got a podcast and I've appeared on both the radio and in a national newspaper this year but there are things that I've chosen to do and I'm vaguely in control of. I can't randomly control whether people phone me up and sing happy birthday to me down the phone. I have specifically banned my mother from doing just this, although she complains at my ban every time. The other person who complains is one of my ex-pen pals, Lisa, in Australia. Every year she messages me, either on Facebook or on Instagram, going, Happy birthday, why can't I write on your wall? And I go, Lisa, you have known you can't write on my wall for ten years, for exactly this reason. I tend never to celebrate my birthday either. Normally I'm to be found in the pub writing dodgy poetry, stories or travel blogs, which to be fair is pretty much what I used to do on any given day, but never mind. This year was a bit more unusual though, despite, or possibly because of, the whole virus thing. I passively acknowledged it by going out to a small restaurant. Our government has had a scheme recently called Eat Out to Help Out. I know, right? whereby for part of the week the government kind of subsidised food in restaurants and pubs to encourage people to spend money in the economy rather than cooking and eating cheaper food at home. Anyway, one of my friends in Sheffield wanted to take advantage of this to celebrate her birthday, which is the same day as mine, though not in the same year, and I was happy to go along with it as it meant I could deflect the centre of attentionness onto her. The other reason I don't mention my birthday often is so people don't buy me presents. I have a thing about presents. If I want something, I'll probably already have it in mind to buy. And when it comes to things like clothes or books, I have niche tastes that only I can really explain. So if people try to buy me stuff like that, it tends to be not really my scene. In saying that, my friend Amy did send me a series of small presents this year, including a box of beer, some flavoured pork scratchings, a one kilogram bag of peanut M&Ms, and a pack of 12 funky socks, which she said in a follow-up message, they're for December. I can't tell if she's trolling me or not. I mean, they are very cool patterned socks of the kind that I would buy and were, if I wore socks, which I haven't since last December, so I don't know. I am a little more concerned about what to do with one kilogram of peanut M&Ms, in all honesty. They're in a resealable bag, but it's one of those with the separate sticky tab to resteal rather than a press-these-two-things-together one, and I've never been terribly good at resealing those. And yes, I know the answer is just eat them, but I've been eating far less in lockdown than I used to, though mainly due to a lack of finance, so I'm not sure my body could cope with an influx of all the sugar, you know? 
I mean, I've had some already and they've kind of given me a headache for the last few days. Speaking of finance, by the way, I've had a bit of a flip. A while ago, by a while ago, I mean at least a month, my lodger at my real house messaged me to say, hey, you've got a letter from the tax office. I said, oh, OK, I'll worry about that later, expecting it to be some kind of, you know, unimportant admin notification. Anyway, I then forgot all about it, as you do. Last week, she sent me a message to say, hey, I opened that mail from the tax office and you've got a tax refund check. <laughs> Firstly, who sends checks these days? Secondly, damn it, my bank is entirely online and given I've run out of paying in slips, putting a check into my bank isn't as simple a procedure as it sounds. Thirdly, uh, that's a relatively big number. How the heck was my tax that wrong when I was working for Eon? Although in speaking to a couple of people, apparently this is quite common. Every couple of years the tax office do a reconciliation and this is the result. I've not managed to get hold of the cheque yet, but it should be arriving this week sometime, so that'll be a much needed finance boost, especially as I don't know when I'm going to be first paid for my new job. The start date of my new job isn't confirmed yet either. It was supposed to be September the 1st, but because of problems around setting up the admin for it, mainly due to needing a criminal records background check, which took a bit longer to process than it should have done, I had a bit of a rant about the application process on my writing Twitter account. It's likely to be a little delayed. I'm still not sure how I feel about this whole new job thing, though. My imposter syndrome is still pretty high. I know from over 20 years in an office environment that pretty much everybody is winging it to some extent. But as a complete newbie to the culture, going into a pretty renowned workplace and not having done anything like it for two and a half years, I know I'm going to be a little out of my depth of the first couple of weeks, maybe? By the way, Though I won't be working from it until the new year, if at all, I've had a look on Google Maps to see where the office is, and it seems to be in quite a pretty place. The building itself is a bit modern and functional, shall we say, and it stands on one of those modern office business parks so beloved of post-industrial development, but it is close to a small woodland and very near to a large public park, so it's quite a pretty area in all, similar to, but nicer than, the place I used to work at, and weirdly just as close to a local shop in the motorway. Seems like a reasonable area to do a lunchtime run in as well. Uh, the office has showers, I checked. Oddly, that's something I rarely did at my old workplace. Running to and from work, yes, but I rarely did a run while at work, even though it was something that quite a few of my colleagues did. They used to go out for runs at lunchtime. I think it was just that I didn't want to hug the showers, to be honest. I liked my runs to end when nobody else was around. My new job obviously means going forward I'll be back to the world of part-time travel, of taking weekend city breaks and or two-week backpacking jaunts that were the backbone of my entire travel experience until recently. As an aside, the place where I'll be working doesn't have quite the same opportunities for inter-office travel as my old place, when I visited delightful places like Bolton, Rotherham and Leicester, amongst others. I never made it to the Bedford office. Though they have offices around the country in exciting places like uh, East Kilbride, and somewhere outside Farnham, I don't think I'll need to visit them very often. But that, plus the likelihood that Covid will change much of the way people travel, and my desire to visit more of the UK anyway, means it's just as likely I'll end up in Penzance next year as, I don't know, Pooler or somewhere. As I said last time, I'm likely to be an island in June, but there's a whole host of domestic destinations on my list for the next couple of years, including Cornwall, Tyree, Orkney and Stevenage because I've never been to Stevenage, and apparently it's quite interesting. I've still never been to St Albans, despite trying to get there for almost as long as I've been trying to get to Bolivia. 
At least I've finally now been to Rochdale, pretty much the only place in the North that had escaped me thus far. One thing that won't necessarily help with foreign jaunts is the sad news that STA travel has recently gone bust. Now, I don't use travel agents terribly often, but when I did, it tended to be them. It was they who I bought my Interrail pass through last autumn, and it was always them that was my first port of call if I had a complex routing query in my travel plans, or if I thought there was a chance I could get a deal with an airline for a better routing. One example of that was I did a fly-into-one-city fly-out of another trip to Australia a few years back that meant I could get cheaper domestic flights. I wasn't aware this was an option till I spoke with them. With companies like this failing, along with other travel agents cutting back and travel guide providers having similar issues, I'm feeling this is an interesting moment for world travellers, especially people like me. There'll be less availability for trips to some of the places I'm interested in going, and of course, also less resource around to guide people on how to do it. Fewer backpackers, fewer places for backpackers to go, and less information about these places means I'm wondering if the type of travel I do will end up looking similar to that that was done a couple of decades ago, when travel was less easy to plan, and when people were more random and casual with their destinations because they simply didn't know whether what they were doing was possible. I'm not saying things will revert back to the old hippie trails of the 1970s when people just got in a car and drove with no care or direction. We do still have a larger resource base than then, even so. But certainly, I think that these could be exciting times for road-less-travelled adventurers, since I suspect more places will be on the road-less-travelled, as people stick far more to what they know and what they can get to easily. This may, of course, mean that the lesser-visited places look to people like me to improve their visibility, but even so, I don't think the likes of the Zanga Sanga National Park in Central African Republic will be calling on my services any time soon. Which is a shame. Maybe I'll just stick to Luton. About as safe, but with less wildlife. It'd also mean I don't have to pretend that I know French. Ah, languages. The nearest I've got to foreign languages recently has been the radio. My initial lockdown plans to learn a little Scottish Gaelic have kind of fallen by the wayside, but hopefully I'll get back into the swing of that over the course of the rest of the year. Uh, But no, this experience of foreign languages has been listening to numbers spoken by computerised voices hidden by electromagnetic static. Let me tell you a tale. Just before I went to university, all those years ago, my parents bought me a portable stereo thing. It had a dual cassette deck, a CD player and four flavours of radio. FM, medium wave, long wave, and the mysterious region known as shortwave. I don't know how much you know about shortwave radio, but in a way it's kind of like the Wild West of broadcasting. Back then it was fun to just see what was there with no schedule or index, so while it was mostly static, occasionally you came across a weird shrill voice in a foreign language just audible over the background, and it made you wonder just who these people were, who they were broadcasting to, where they were broadcasting from, who was listening. Sometimes I'd come across something weirder, though, including once a somewhat electronic female voice that repeated zvo, act, sieben, three times, and then zvo, three times, for what seemed like forever, then fell silent. Maybe half an hour later, a voice announced, this is the voice of America, Jerusalem, and my curiosity was satisfied. Or was it? What was the connection between someone reading out numbers in German with the Israeli branch of the broadcasting arm of the US government. To this day, I never found out. But I suspect the actual answer is none at all. And the two just happened to share a frequency, possibly on purpose. 
The trouble since then has been that very few radios have had a shortwave receiver built into them, so any remaining curiosity I've had on mysterious broadcasts has been put on hold. At least until a couple of months ago, when I came upon a website that acted as a shortwave radio. It's based in the Netherlands and allows you to listen live to pretty much anything on the AM band, from medium-wave local and national radio stations to weird amateur radio enthusiasts sending Morse code messages to each other just for the crack, or even just chatting about nothing at all. It's also possible at the very high end to pick up taxi operator communications and, of course, CB radio. There's also genuine radio stations. At last, the BBC Radio 4 long-wave shipping forecast. Other useful specialist broadcasts, including military and airport weather reports. And, of course, barely audible mysterious electronic voices reading numbers out in foreign languages. These, though, are the best of the lot. Famously described by the UK government as what you suppose they are. People shouldn't be mystified by them. They are not for, shall we say, public consumption. They are, by definition then correctly, supposed to be a method of clandestine communication, secret broadcasts in open airspace from suspect organisations to peoples unknown. These are the number stations, whereby at known times and on known frequencies, Messages are sent in coded format to spies and operatives, usually in foreign countries. These messages could be anything from all is going well, happy birthday, to get the fuck out of there, it's about to kick off. They have two advantages over other methods of secret messaging. Firstly, they don't require any specialist equipment other than a shortwave radio. In most cases, communication is strictly a one-way affair from HQ to the spies. In some jurisdictions, even owning a shortwave radio was grounds for suspicion, but of course it is a popular medium for general broadcasts, so it's usually just about acceptable. I think, just don't push it, and don't make yourself too obvious. Discretion is the watchword. Secondly, the code used to transfer messages is theoretically unbreakable. Essentially, each spy has a translation pad, a list of numbers that act as a decode key. Each of these pads is unique, and each pad is only ever used once. This means that every single message sent is uniquely coded. This is how it's unbreakable, as unless you have access to the pad, you'll never have anything to base a decoding from. While the actual details are unknowable, and presumably vary between operations, one generally revealed method is for the original message to be converted into two-digit numbers. For example, A is 01. B is 0, 2, etc., and then add the digits of the key code mathematically. You might want to write this down. So, if the message is Hello World, the original message becomes 08051212152315181204. Each of those numbers is where the letters are in the alphabet. So, 08 is H, 05 is E, etc., etc. Now, suppose the first part of the ENCODE pad is 23984-16172-92179-13864. All you need to do to encode the message is to add the numbers together. The 08 representing the H is added to the first two digits, here 23, to make 31. The 05 representing E is added to the second two digits of the keypad, 98 to make 103. It's over 100, so just subtract 100 so it stays a two-digit number, 03, etc, etc. What you end up with is Hello World being sent as the string 
31035-37387-153209506. There has been a tendency for these messages to be sent as blocks of five digits. They don't have to be, it just seems like a bit of a tradition. All the recipient at the other end has to do is to reverse the process, subtract the key code from the message, and they end up back with a simple A equals 1 list of numbers. It's much simpler in practice than it is to explain. There are much fewer of these number stations than there used to be, for reasons of international politics and, to an extent, advances in technology. Many now broadcast using Morse code or even through digital means, the same kind of tones you'd hear in a fax or internet connection if you could hear it. And for those of you who are old enough to remember dial-up internet connections, yes, you could decode that handshake, as it's called, into a series of numbers that do mean something. So much of the shortwave band now sounds like, well, now it just sounds odd and creepy, to be fair. Although possibly not as creepy as hearing a disembodied electronic voice repeat numbers into static-filled space. I wonder how you get that job, anyway. Presumably it's not one available on Fiverr. Maybe you need to do the radio equivalent of sitting on a park bench feeding ducks in Hyde Park with a hat on. Anyway, this is going to be another Brief Tale of English History pod, and today I'll be taking you back to the 15th century, before anyone had discovered radio. Maybe secret messages were sent by messenger horsemen instead, I don't know. And as you know, my interests with regard to history have been generally geared towards chaos, War, revolution, the collapse of empires, the creation of new states and all of that brings. Hence my near obsession with dark history. Ancient fossil, you say? Yeah, it's a generic piece of stone to me. But, oh cool, on this spot 20,000 people were put to death. Way. Where these interests come from is hard to say, but much of it I think comes from two board games I had in my primary school days. Imperium Romanum II, which played out the rise and fall of the Roman Empire over 500 years, and Kingmaker which delved into great detail about what was later known as the Wars of the Roses, the conflict in 15th century England and Wales that produced four Shakespeare plays, all incredibly biased, by the way. Richard III was framed, and is brought up whenever sporting sides from either side of the Pennines meet, the two sides being York and Lancaster. The Wars of the Roses, though, despite their apparent geographic bent, were not fought between the two counties of Lancashire and Yorkshire, Rather, they were fought between the rival dukes of those respective counties, who held land across the whole country, and who were each supported by many of the other noble families of the period. The name was a much later epithet, given because both sides tended to sport a rose, a coloured rose as an emblem. Lancaster had a red one, whilst York had a white one, and even today this association lingers. So, for example, one of the local radio stations near to me in my youth was called Red Rose Rock FM, while the other side of the Pennines in Yorkshire, Leeds United Football Club's entire emblem is a white rose. The House of York and the House of Lancaster both claimed descent from King Edward III in various complicated ways, and thus both claimed the kingship of the country. Edward III had died in 1377, so this was a long-simmering affair that finally boiled over in the 1450s, when the incumbent king, Henry VI, was deemed to be an ineffective ruler. It was during his reign that the French pretty much kicked the English out in the dying days of the Hundred Years' War, and this resulting loss may have caused some hereditary mental illness issues to kick in. Questions were raised as to who would succeed him, and, since both parties had what they perceived to be a valid claim, and were both backed by several powerful landowners with sizeable militia and armies of their own, there was only ever going to be one outcome. As Harry Hill may have said, FIGHT! 
One place on the Kingmaker board game map was Conisborough Castle, in the game designated as being a home of the Clifford family, whereas in real life the Cliffords were very closely related to the Yorkist faction, and thus during the war the castle was pretty much directly controlled or owned by King Edward IV. Its earlier history is actually more interesting. It was used as a pawn in a domestic dispute between John de Varenne and the Thomas Earl of Lancaster. John de Varenne said, You had sex with my wife, so now I want to divorce her. Thomas of Lancaster said, The courts have denied you. Ha! Whereupon John de Varenne said, You bastard, I'm going to kidnap your wife in revenge. Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, was a bit undisturbed by this and said, Suits me, I'll just take your castle in return. 14th century Jeremy Kyle would probably have been much more interesting. There's not much of it left today. Apart from the main tower, there's a couple of walls enclosing what are now grassy mounds. But, I mean, that's no different from most ruins. The important thing is to walk in the steps of history. To be fair, what does remain is very well explained and detailed. You have to use some imagination, but the information boards and interactive holographic displays are pretty in-depth, as well as being quite accessible. It's been popular with visitors for a while, although ruinous since at least the mid-1600s. It was used as the setting for the novel Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott, so it's been the site of tourism since Victorian times. The real meat of the war, or is it the bread of the sandwich? Never quite sure about that metaphor. Anyway, they lie some distance either side of Conisborough. Some way to the northwest, just outside Wakefield, lie the ruins of Sandal Castle. Originally built in the 12th century, it was directly owned by the Duke of York, and was the home base of Richard, father of later kings Edward IV and Richard III, but also immensely powerful in his own right. One of the inner circle of King Henry VI, it was his manoeuvring and subsequent falling out with the king in the late 1450s that was the spark that lit that long 80-year fuse. There's even less of this castle than Conisborough. It is nothing more than a couple of columns of stone scattered around several circles of hill. So little left, in fact, that the site is open to the elements and free to enter and explore but it's still possible to get a feel for how suitable a location it is. Out to the west, the land falls into a plain quite sharply that still provides a clear view far into the distance. But while council estate housing now fills the northern vista towards Wakefield, Duke of York Road, incidentally, which continues the sense of history here, this is where one of the most significant early battles was fought. The Battle of Wakefield in 1460 was an early victory for the Lancastrian side in the war and may have given us the monomic Richard of York gave battle in vain for the colours of the rainbow. In a nutshell, despite occupying the high ground of Sandal Castle, he launched an attack on a much larger force camped at the bottom of the hill, which completely failed, obviously, and he was killed in the melee. Nobody quite knows exactly why he did this. Theories abound about his miscalculation of his opponent's forces, or his belief that reinforcements would arrive, or that he was actually provoked into battle by goading from the Lancastrian forces. Whatever the truth, it was a decisive defeat for the Yorkist cause. There's now a memorial outside a school that marks the alleged spot where Richard of York died. It reads, Richard Plantagenet, Duke of York, fighting for the cause of the White Rose, fell on this spot in the Battle of Wakefield, December 30th, 1460. This stone is erected in 1897 by some who wish to preserve the traditional site. His death may have been in vain, but not long after, his son defeated the incumbent King Henry VI after the snowbound Battle of Toton in March 1461, a village somewhere between Leeds and York and generally regarded as the bloodiest battle to occur on English soil. And there have been quite a few contenders for that title. His son was then crowned King Edward IV. 
Ten years later, there was a second flurry of activity, with Henry VI making a brief comeback, but this ended after the battles of Barnet and Tewkesbury in 1471. The former seeing the death of the main power broker at the time, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, a powerful noble with a large backing whose influence gave him the epithet of the Kingmaker, hence the board game's name. And the latter, the Battle of Barnet, three weeks later, when the Lancastrian heir to the throne, Edward, Prince of Wales, son of King Henry VI, died, along with many of the leading supporters of the King, who himself was executed several days later. Edward IV then ruled mostly in peace until his death in 1483. I am aware that this period of history seemed to exclusively contain men who had one of only about three names, Edward, Henry and Richard. But I guess people generally referred to them by title. Richard Neville was generally referred to as Warwick, for instance. Ah, nicknames. Such a man thing. After Edward IV's death in 1483, things got a little messy. His brother, Richard, Duke of York, obviously a different one, took the throne as Richard III, in preference to Edward's son, also called Edward, possibly as a protector role, as Edward was only 12 at the time. For their own protection, the younger Edward and his brother, Richard, were moved into the Tower of London, which was then a royal residence. And were never seen again. One of the most famous mysteries of the medieval age. While most historians and observers have blamed Richard III for their demise, this has been generally because they've been writing to please an audience made up largely of his enemies' supporters. In fact, his rival to the throne, the Lancastrian Henry, obviously, Beaufort, would have had more to lose while they lived, as his claim to the throne, although still from Edward III, was a somewhat tenuous one. Through his mother, he was a descendant of an illegitimate daughter of the fourth son of Edward III. Jeremy Kyle would not have run out of material in medieval times. In truth, it's most likely the two of them died of illness not long after they were moved. Henry Beaufort was born in the Welsh town of Pembroke. This was a Lancastrian stronghold, but he fled to France after the August victories of 1471. His mother spent the intervening time trying to secure his continued survival and eventual succession to the throne. She managed at least the first part of this. Richard's habit of falling out with influential nobles, though, and a subsequent increase in rumours about his role in the disappearance of his nephews, meant that Henry's challenge wasn't a mere hope from exile in France. So in 1485, Henry returned with an army, landed near Pembroke, where he was assured of a base of domestic support, then marched to Leicestershire, gathering more troops along the way. They were destined to meet not far from the Leicestershire town of Market Bosworth. It was a sunny day towards the end of August, not long after my birthday. Although dry and bright, between the two sets of troops was an area of boggy ground that would take a few centuries before it dried out. On one side, atop Ambien Hill, stood the army of Richard III. At the bottom, over the fields, stood the much smaller army of Henry Beaufort, made up in part of French mercenaries. With the higher ground and the much larger army, there could only be one winner of this fight, right? The joker in the pack, and not just because of his non-standard forename, was Thomas Stanley. King of Man, and later Earl of Derby, traditionally one of the leading supporters of Richard III. He was also stepfather of Henry Beaufort. With divided loyalties, and one of his sons held as hostage by Richard to ensure his support, his fairly substantial force was parked up on one side of the battlefield, watching, waiting. In the event, his force wasn't needed. Innovative, and by innovative I mean copied from the Roman army, tactics from Henry's force, coupled with worry about Stanley's troop, forced Richard's hand, and he stormed over the boggy ground straight into Henry's bodyguard. 
His horse got stuck and he had to dismount, but still he kept fighting, wielding a sword like a possessed man on a mission. At one point he got close enough to kill Henry's standard bearer, but ultimately his battle was, like his dad's, in vain. Henry's troop was too strong and soon overpowered and killed Richard. Ever since, there's been much dispute over where the battlefield was. On Ambien Hill, believed for a while to be where much of the battle took place, there's now a museum. Although reasonably small, it's a good combination of accessible and in-depth, using interactive tales of several of the types of people involved in the battle, including a representation of Thomas Stanley himself, it goes over the background to the battle in detail from both sides, a brief overview of the order of battle, and then goes into a bit of detail about the long-term aftermath. The museum also has a small arena where, on special occasions, they hold medieval tourneys and have falconry displays. They also offer guided walks around the general battlefield site, although archaeological research has finally proved that the site of Richard III's death now lies about a mile or so away in a farmer's private field. It's only by going to sites like this that you get a scale of just how big a battlefield is. When looking on a planet, it feels like it's only a couple of hundred metres or so between the armies, but sometimes it can be much more than that. Like his dad at Wakefield, Richard III has a memorial stone that commemorates his death, and it too used to stand on the site he's believed to have fallen. These days it stands in the main yard of the Bosworth Battlefield Visitor Centre, partly for tourism purposes, and partly because it was realised it was in the wrong place anyway, so it didn't matter where they put it. Anyway, apart from a couple of minor skirmishes, and one complete muppet who pretended to be a someone and got his comeuppance in double-quick time, the Battle of Bosworth Field was more or less the end of the conflict, and indeed the end of several centuries of general civil strife. In fact, the next civil war to take place in England was some 200 years later. This was unprecedented period of domestic peace. I mean, obviously we fought the French between times, because, you know, that's what we do in this country, and we also fought the Spanish, but even 200 years later, that civil war we had was much more self-contained affair, and it also saw the death of a reigning monarch. To unite the warring factions after the Battle of Bosworth, Henry Beaufort, now crowned as Henry VII, married Richard's daughter and founded a whole new dynasty, the Tudors, who you may have heard of. Richard's body was sent back to Leicester, traditionally said to be naked tied to the back of a horse, where it was buried in the gardens of the Greyfriars Church, a friary run by Franciscan monks, just on the outskirts of the city. A stone marked the site for posterity. That would have been the end of the story, but for a bizarre footnote. Henry VII's son, naturally enough called Henry VIII, because really, why change a winning formula? His son was called Edward, and it took the childless Queen Elizabeth to ensure future kings had different names, like uh, James, Charles, and an awful lot more Georges than one might need, though Edward did make a comeback in the 20th century. And Henry VIII had a, shall we say, bit of a spat with the Pope over divorce proceedings and ended up founding his own religion, the equivalent of storming off an episode of Jeremy Kyle singing Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me, which led to him abolishing and destroying the system of monasteries in place in England. This gave him an awful lot of money, but it meant that the marker stone was removed and uh, we lost Richard III's grave. For 450 years, his body had disappeared, vanished somewhere under the continued development of the city of Leicester. It wasn't until 2011 that a specific task force was set up to find his body, to determine once and for all whether his grave was truly destroyed or whether modern science could locate it. 
Initial land surveys were done and preparations were made over the course of the next 18 months to start digging in what was believed to be the site of the church, mostly covered by the site of Leicester City Council's social services building, but some of it being accessible in what was the car park. The chances of finding him were slim and the project was expected to take some time. Indeed, if life were a movie, years of research and wasted money would result in his body being found in the last hour on the last day of looking. Life is not a movie. It took about five minutes. Or rather, within the first day of digging, they found remains of several bones, some of which, when analysed over the course of the following month or two, were determined, using a combination of DNA analysis and bone work, showing evidence consistent with a death in battle, with a very strong likelihood of being those of the missing king. Ironically, the bones were found under a space painted with an R for reserved parking space. Cue much excitement and embarrassed coughs. 450 years. And you thought it was embarrassing when you mislay your keys for five minutes. He was reburied in nearby Leicester Cathedral in 2015. Against his wishes, it must be said, he was very much a northerner and had requested interment in York Minster. However, Leicester called finders keepers, losers weepers and installed him in pride of place, a mere couple of hundred metres or so from his original burial place. Outside the cathedral, there's a statue of him near the King Richard Visitor Centre. It's sometimes interesting to me as how the world could have been different. Richard was so close to killing Henry at that battle, but couldn't quite lay the telling blow. Henry's descendants took England down the road to world domination. By all accounts of his attitudes during his brief reign, Richard was far more introspect and insular. Had he won the Battle of Bosworth, a difference measured in mere feet, he may have taken England down a far different, less dominating path. We could have ended up staying out of much of the later conflicts in Europe, maybe being much less active in colonial furs, and who knows, this podcast may have been recorded in some odd provincial variant of Spanish. It's weird how small movements are so pivotal. Well, that's just about all for this episode. Next week, I'm planning to do a themed episode on the type I used to do before COVID. This one, all about alcohol. Because I like beer. Until then, don't lose your keys, or your kings, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I will understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Ashfield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice or alternatively go to my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot or email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now.